In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And this week we have a super exciting episode. We are going to discuss how the Inflation Reduction Act is going to affect the midterm landscape. And then we're going to have a discussion about this new tactic that Democrats have been trying to use to win the midterms by promoting extremist candidates. Not extremist left-wing candidates, extremist right-wing candidates. <laughs> it's a bold strategy, Cotton. And uh, then we're going to have a discussion about the idea of intuitive arguments versus informed arguments. Mm, man, so that's going to be a fun discussion. This is a, just such a classic fucking Perspectrum episode. That's so, so exciting. So classic. I always love that. Yeah. You know what else is classic at this point, Michael? What? The COVID numbers. Wow. Yeah, everybody's used to these at this point. (laughs) So worldwide, we've hit 592 million total cases with average daily case rate over the last week of 802,000. That's down 7.5% from last week's 867,000. In terms of death, we've hit 6.44 million deaths worldwide with average daily deaths over the last seven days of 2,039, down 3% from 2,109 the week before. In terms of vaccination, we've hit 67.2% of the world with at least one dose, which is up two-tenths of a percent, which is double the normal increase we've seen uh, over the last few weeks, um, which is, you know, not that high, but still better than nothing. And in the U.S., we've hit 94.2 million total cases with average daily cases over the last seven days of 80,000, which is down 25% from 107,000 the week before. And in terms of death, we've hit 1.059 million deaths with average daily deaths of 306 down from 344 uh, the week before or down 11%. And in terms of vaccination... In the U.S., we are exactly where we were last week. 78.7% of the U.S. has at least one dose, um, and 67.2% have two doses of the vaccine. You know, the COVID numbers really have become a classic for the perspective. I was just thinking, because I'm pretty sure that a majority of our episodes at this point have been... During the pandemic. During the pandemic. Yeah, we started in October 2019. Yeah. I was I was still living in my grandma's house. Yeah. Yeah, when we started recording. I was still yeah. driving out to record live with you at your grandma's house. Yeah. The first time that we, we that we talked about COVID. Yeah. And then the week after that, never COVID again. really happened. <laughs> and then we never did it again. Yep. Because neither of us wanted to die. <laughs> and now we live way too far apart for me yes, to drive we do. to your house. Yeah. No, it did. It did create a good infrastructure for that, though. It is kind of crazy um, how long we've been doing the show. All throughout, yeah. we we have spanned. We've survived longer uh, than uh, you know the worst days of a global pandemic. You know that is true. There we go. That is true. Yeah. Um, you know what else has been a long time? What 
Nathan. The Democrats actually doing something meaningful. <laughs> that was ham-handed. That was that was hands made of ham. <laughs> that was as if not not slices of ham, whole hams. You both hands were made of whole hams. <laughs> hey, I stand by it. Uh, I'm not proud of it, but I stand by it. Okay, great. I'm so glad you stand by it. <laughs> so Michael and I were talking about this yesterday. And one of the things that we kind of pride ourselves on the pod about is that we try to focus more on the specifics of policy. When we go through mm -hmm. and analyze policy, we try to focus on what are the actual things that are in the policy, what are the numbers, and how much will it actually impact us? Will mm -hmm. it actually help? And then we give our opinions on it. So we pride ourselves on that. We pride ourselves on not being what the mainstream media often is, which is every single time someone drops a hat or farts in the middle of the Senate, it's like, ooh, how would this affect midterms? <laughs> to be fair, if someone, depending on who, if someone farted in the middle of the Senate, that could actually be, depending on who it is, that could help or hurt. <laughs> I think so, if Bernie Sanders farted in the middle of the Senate, he would go up in the poll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would. And everybody would look at him and he'd just be like, what? What are you looking what? at? Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. So, but this week, <laughs> instead of talking about that, as you might have picked up on by the fact that we just started off this midterm segment talking about farts, uh, we're getting away <laughs> a little bit from like the policy intensive kind of focus that we, we usually try to bring. And yeah. talking about another thing, which is, you know, important on like a second order basis. It's only yeah. important to the degree that we might be able to do something good later on. And that yeah. is the impact of some of these changes, some of the actual action by the Democrats on the midterm elections. Yeah, because overall, it has been a good week for Democrats in terms of getting yeah. stuff passed. And also, it's been a bad week for Republicans in terms of looking like the assholes. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's looking like they're gonna, they are gonna end up trying to block gay marriage. They, their fumble with the PACT Act yeah. was just so brazenly idiotic. And it was the worst of all worlds because they went from supporting it to not supporting it to getting shamed into supporting it, mm -hmm. which is probably the worst it could have been for them. Yeah, totally. Um, but it, it ended up getting passed. Yeah. And then, of course, you had the CHIP Act, which got, which got passed. You had the um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been passed by the Senate. And I'd say probably has a pretty good shot in the House. Yeah, I think that's so, probably true. And you have the gun control bill, which was like a yeah. bipartisan thing from a few weeks ago, which is like not a shame on you Republicans thing, but, you know, another kind of feather in the cap of Democrats. Yeah, exactly. Now, everybody can sit around and argue that the Democrats aren't doing enough. Michael and I do that all the time, sure. and I'm sure we will continue to do that. And boy, does Biden's approval rating reflect that belief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so let's talk about where the midterm election stands right now. Before we kind of get into specifically the ways in which this will very likely affect the midterm, let's talk about where the midterms actually stand right now. So right now, the polls 
in the Senate are looking even better for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Like the Democrats are ahead by two points in Nevada, three points in Georgia, four points in Ohio, 10 points in Arizona, and 11 points in Pennsylvania. Wow. And in North Carolina, they're even. Jeez. Wow. Like all so many states that we were like, ah, oh, could go this way, could go that way. Some states yeah. we called in either direction just a couple of weeks ago. That's yeah. like a lot of progress. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, by the way, really quick side comment about North Carolina. Uh, last week I made a slight factual error um, where I talked about Tom Tillis and I said that he was up for reelection in North Carolina. Um, I was actually wrong about that. Uh, I was, I was kind of conflating the 2020 election and this election. It's actually, mm. uh, it's actually Bud who's running on the Republican side, not, not Tillis. Tillis is gotcha. already, Tillis is already, well, that's okay. We'll forgive you for messing up one of the 535 seats in the Congress. and because of the power of editing nobody will know why we just laughed so hard (laughs) so anyways the point is the senate is looking even better i mean ohio still baffles me yeah i mean the fact that ohio is looking good for democrats is looking better for democrats than nevada yeah is just insane it's and remember it it is astounding especially in the midterm year like it's like in a good year that would be surprising and we don't even have any polling data on wisconsin yet because they haven't had their primary yet Mm -hmm. so we don't really have a lot of official polling there and that could also be a potentially competitive race Hmm. so the senate's looking uh, uh, the senate's looking pretty good for democrats the house is looking better for democrats Still not great, but better. Wow. So the House, in terms of the generic ballot, which is usually the best indicator of where the House stands, the Democrats are now up by 0.1% for the first time. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, the de- the Democrats have been declining super steadily since October in terms of, like, the generic ballot. Like, the question, who, if the election yeah. were right now, who would you want to be in control of? Uh, Congress and like that's yeah. that's normal in a midterm again like we said this a bunch yeah. like you would just expect that the party in power would decline throughout those two years and then you know lose some seats in um, in the midterm um, but the yeah. fact that we're now ascending we've like reversed that trend and are actually gaining ground and are now like a point uh, a, you know 0.1 percent ahead of the house that's so surprising yeah. And in terms of the real clear politics average, which the reason why I'm I, I'm going to go back a little bit to kind of establish some precedence with this. But the reason why I'm bringing this up to um, the Republicans are still ahead, but it's only by point one percent. There has definitely been a very clear change in the polling, which has been steady since the uh, since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So I want to put that into perspective because I want to compare it to past elections. All right. So uh, first, I want to go back to the 2018 election where the Democrats had a pretty significant blue wave in the House of Representatives. Yeah. Right? In the House of Representatives, they won 235 seats in the House. Remember, you need 218 seats in the House in order to have a majority. All right. So in 2018, 
the 538 average going into it was the Democrats were up by 7.3 points. Hmm. In terms of the final results, Democrats won by 8.4 points. Hmm. So they actually overperformed by about 1% in that poll. Now, that might give you some hope, but let's also look at the 2020 election. For the 2020 election, going into it, the Real Clear Politics average showed them up by 6.8%, but they ended up only winning by 3.1%. Hmm. All right. So it is possible that there is a sort of difference between the polls, I would say, in the polls and what ends up happening. There's very likely going to be a, a difference. Yeah. The question is, will it be in favor of the Democrats or will it be against the Democrats? Because one thing to keep in mind is that looking at the actual percentages, Republicans in the Real Clear Politics average have 44.6% to Democrats 44.5%, which means that there is a significant amount of people that are not decided that will definitely end up being the key. Yep. Also, also, you have to consider how does that translate into the percentages of seats that are actually in Congress? Because keep in mind, because of gerrymandering, it is completely possible that the Democrats could win the popular vote in the House, but still come up short in the actual, in terms of the actual breakdown of the House. So when thinking of that, I was actually looking through these and kind of looking at, okay, what exactly was the breakdown in terms of how much they won by? And for the most part, the percentages in terms of how much they won by about uh, added up to the percentage of how much of the house that they had. Hmm. Now that could be different because of redistricting. So I don't want to, I don't want to get anybody's hopes up or anything, but it seems that it does often like even out just a little bit. Hmm. Republicans still got about uh, approximately 1% more seats than mm. the percentage of which they won. Yeah, they won. Or, uh, that makes sense. That aligns with like other analysis that I've read around like the Republican general advantage in popular yeah. elections due to redistricting is about about one percent. Yeah, but the Democrats got about the percentage of of House seats as in proportion to the popular in proportion to the popular vote that they won, hmm. um, which would also suggest that independent voting seems to favor Republicans more than Democrats mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So, so anyways, that's kind of where the how why where everything stands right now. So the question is, will the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act help that or hurt that? Yeah. I think it's also really important to your point Nathan to think about our segments of voters when we think about their response to this act. Cuz to your point like there's kind of a, there's like a few different variables that go into this. One's obviously kind of turnout. You know, if Democrats yeah. fail to turn out, we just we won't be able to keep the seats that we're hoping for and we'll probably lose a bunch. Like that's kind of always the case. Um I don't really have like a strong opinion on turnout except that I think most people have gotten it through their thick fucking skulls that they have to vote. Like it yeah. seems like like it might, we might be beyond the age of like people just staying home most of the time. Um, so the other, the other bit is the piece you point out aside from our 
like likely Democrats, likely Republicans, that independent, undecided vote, which is a pretty large group in this particular, it seems to be a pretty large group in this particular election. So thinking about how this legislation moves both of those needles, moves, yeah. encourages Democrats to mobilize, to turn out to vote, and encourages independents to vote Democrat is like the lens that I'm thinking about as I'm going through and considering how this how this recent legislation is going to yeah. help promote the Democratic uh, success in the midterms. So I would argue that to an extent, I would say the independent vote is important, but I would say that what is more important is turning up the base. And as a DJ, a I'm huge... always a fan of turning up the base. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the, the biggest problem that often happens in midterm elections, especially ones where the the president in power is a Democrat, is that you just have so many younger voters that just don't show up. And the thing is, Joe Biden has not been doing well, or at least as well as a Democrat should be, among younger voters. Yep. According to a Pew Research Center poll, that was conducted in July of this year, the mid in mid July, 61% of Democrats, 61% of Democrats think that, that Joe Biden could be doing a lot more hmm. to fight against climate change. Hmm. All right. And keep in mind, this poll was conducted before this bill was even was passed. like a possibility gotcha. was even, was even passed. So, what I'm thinking then is looking at polling data like that, you're going to have a lot of younger people who are very passionate about climate change. And the polling actually does show in no uncertain terms that younger Democrats are far more likely to, to care about climate change and to want bigger impacts, bigger, uh, um, bigger policy changes on climate change. So among Democrats ages 18 to 29, 26% say that Joe Biden's administration, that, that the Biden administration's climate policies are taking the country in the wrong direction. Wow. Jeez. Right? Not even just like they're not doing enough. They're taking it in the wrong direction compared to only 9% of Democrats 65 or older. Mm. Hmm. So you got 26% of young Democrats saying that Biden is take is is going in the wrong direction. The way that you fix that is to go in the right direction. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's what I'm thinking is like the more I read about some of the polling on the specific provisions specifically of the Inflation Reduction Act, the more I think that Democrats might have threaded the needle on this one pretty well in terms yeah. of combining a bundle of issues that will motivate the support of Democrats to be like, "Okay, like you're doing something. We like what you're doing. Let's let's try to like, you know, drive support for that. But also like appeal to the like independent voters on a number of measures and even on Republican measures, like include some stuff that makes them not pissed off that they like. And like even on measures that are less appealing to them, they're not stuff that they're like hotly against for the most part. It's like a yeah. pretty pretty good mixture for that for for like a midterm cocktail. Yeah, and there are two pretty big provisions in the bill that this this specific uh, Pew Research Center poll uh, polled about asked about that are wildly popular among the general public. 
So providing a tax credit to businesses for developing carbon capture slash storage, which is in the bill, mm -hmm. 79% support. Providing incentives to increase the use of hybrid and electric vehicles, 67%. Two major parts of this piece of legislation that are widely popular among the general public. Yeah. So not only are you helping to get people that might be disillusioned by the Democratic Party back on board, you're not necessarily making the general public angry at you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's and, and I think like it's a pretty compelling part of this bill. So so dataforprogress.org uh, put together some polling on this as well. And obviously, like the Inflation Reduction Act isn't passed yet. It's gone through yeah. the Senate. Like it's been a very short window for people to actually put together polling on this. But like, you know, uh, generally speaking pretty like strong polling results so far so it looks like overall when asked um do you support or oppose the inflation reduction act 73 percent of likely voters said they support it um mm. which is remarkable 95 wow. percent support from democrats and still 52 percent from republicans with 73 percent support from independent party which like that blows my mind. And when asked about yeah. when asked about like specific issues within the bill, to your point, um, from Democrats, like support for specific provisions, w like ranged between like eighty four percent on the low end um, to ninety five to ninety one percent on the high end. And the low end piece was about uh, low income tax and middle income tax credits for electric vehicles, and the high end was grants for reducing air pollution and tax credits for uh, rooftop solar among Republicans. Yeah. The range was 38% support on the low end. That's also for the electric vehicle tax credits up to 62% for the fair wage and labor standards being required for energy or for clean energy tax credits. And then similar on independence, 56% on the low end, again, about the electric vehicle tax credits for low and, in and middle income people to 77% for investment in conservation and sustainable farming like yeah just like generally broad support one thing i thought was really interesting also um was that there's like really strong support specifically for like the health care portions 77 percent support overall for capping drug prices which is which includes 83 percent support from democrats 74 percent from independents and 73 percent support from republicans so like so the, there's like a few different healthcare provisions, but broadly speaking, they're pretty dang popular, which is really interesting because in comparison, the poll asked about specifically the uh, pollution like and, and clean pollution like reduction efforts of the act and whether that would cause the, the you know, the person taking the poll to support or oppose the candidate. So overall, 56% said that specifically the the environmental regulations would push them to support a candidate uh, with, you know, obviously that kind of ranges as you'd expect with like 82% of Democrats saying, yep, if a candidate supports this, I'll, I'll vote for them and down to like 33% of Republicans. But the interesting thing is that that means that if the main provisions of the bill, literally half of the bill go, goes towards climate policy, 
right? Which is has like a wide spectrum of support, but overall averages out to be more supported than not across the political spectrum. But even so, the bill overall is broadly popular because it still delivers on those things like healthcare, like yeah. wages uh, for the 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 you know uh, clean energy tax credits, like air pollution, like on a number of different issues that have broad support. And so overall, it's really popular across the board, which I think is like a pretty impressive accomplishment if you're trying to try to you know juice for the midterms. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so then the next question would be, what is the Republican strategy on this? And so I was, I was trying to see if I could find any good arguments for how this could potentially hurt Democrats. And um, I think I got my answer to both whether or not it would hurt or help Democrats and also what the Republican strategy would be. And that is that the Republican strategy is going to be to just bracently fucking lie out of their teeth. <laughs> oh, <man>. So, <laughs> so I, I, I came across this article from real clear markets. It was written by a guy named uh, Nathan Klein. Um, no relation. <laughs> no relation. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's how names work in the U S. <laughs> um, and after reading this article, I am very much convinced that this guy should not have a fucking job because he's a complete <laughs> dumbass. Is being able to post on a website a job? <laughs> well, we'll leave that up to other people to decide. <laughs> no, this, this is this is an article. This is an article that is being put out, and it's not even marked as opinion. It is wow. just an article that they put out. Oh my god! Um, and like I, I'm not saying that as a fire him because he has different opinions. I'm saying fire him because he's bad at his fucking job. <laughs> um, so first off, going through it, the the main thing that he is so he's trying to present this as this will actually hurt the Democrats because polling data shows that there are provisions in it that are extremely unpopular. And I was like, really? That's insane. Wow. Is he talking mm, about the climate yeah, change? Yeah, none stuff? of the polling data I've seen. Yeah. Hmm. So what he brings up. He says that it cuts Medicare, which is broadly unpopular. So the argument that he's trying to make, and you know, if you if you oh listen to oh my god, yeah, this is a yeah. total fucking lie. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, holy shit, I can't wait for you to walk <laughs> us through that. Oh my god. Okay, okay. So so let's so to walk you through it. Um, as we talked about last week, one of the parts of this bill that is so awesome that is going to help make it not just not just deficit neutral but actually take money away from the deficit actually reduce the deficit is the fact that there is a provision that allows for medicare to renegotiate pharmaceutical drugs some pharmaceutical drugs um with pharmaceutical companies all right because medicare has such a large is such a large portion of the consumer market for pharmaceuticals that does give it a certain amount of power. And one of the things in this bill would be that they would be able to renegotiate those drug prices. And it was estimated that approximately $300 billion could be saved on that alone. Yeah. And what Republicans <laughs> are trying to do, what this article is trying to do, they're quoting this other organization called the... American Prosperity Alliance, which is just like a website that has one ad on it. I don't even know if they're an official organization. Um, 
the argument is that because this bill reduces the amount that the government has to pay for Medicare, that this is a Democrat, this is a Democratic um, push to cut benefits from seniors <laughs> in order to pay for climate change, which is such bullshit. That's... It is complete bullshit. And the reason why it's bullshit is because what's happening is not that they're not going to be able to get as much medication, it's that the medication that the government is using, that the government has to spend money in order to buy, costs less because they renegotiated it. Yeah. But they're claiming that they're cutting benefits. Oh my God! It's remarkable. It's like it's remarkably stupid. Yeah, it's like saying what people want from their health insurance is their health insurance to pay a lot instead of yeah. fucking health care. <laughs> Which is it's so funny that he's making that argument. So one, not funny because the lie and people shouldn't yeah. be lying. But two, it's it is kind of funny because those provisions of this bill are so fucking popular. 73% support for Medicare negotiating drug prices. 73% support for reducing the federal budget by $300 billion, which is what that does. 72% support for limiting out-of-pocket drug uh, cost maximum for seniors to $2,000 a year. Like, just two-thirds of Americans support all of that shit. Yeah. Such yeah. a lie. And the funny and the funny thing is, he points to a poll, which by the way, I couldn't even find this poll. It said it was it said it was a survey by the American Prosperity Alliance conducted on iMessage on Incorporated. I they texted twelve of their friends. I guess. <laughs> because I could not find I could not find this. I tried to find the poll. He doesn't have a link to it in this in this article. I I could not find the poll. That's always but, good. That's always encouraging when you when you're looking at a factual argument, someone having uh, ghost resources. Yeah, but he so he laser focuses on uh, Georgia, Nevada, New Hampshire, and West Virginia, and what he said and and what he said in this again, even though I couldn't even find the poll, so already it's like red flag. What he said was that um the poll found that sixty nine percent in Georgia, fifty four percent in Nevada, seventy one percent in New Hampshire, and eighty percent in West Virginia were less likely to support the Inflation Reduction Act after learning that it cuts three hundred billion dollars from Medicare. So when we lie about the bill, sure. people are less likely to support it. <laughs> <laughs> And the whole point of this article was just to be like, I mean, it's it's under the guise of just calling balls and strikes. Mm -hmm. We're just like, oh, no, this is going to be bad for them because look at all this polling. Like he also he also and we'll we'll actually talk a little bit about this later. He also makes the argument that it's it's going it's unpopular because the bill includes new taxes, which means that it is a case of robbing Peter to pay Paul, which is hugely unpopular. There are lots of problems with that argument. Yeah. Number one, it's intuitive and not informed, which we'll actually talk about in the last segment. But number two, it doesn't raise taxes. It closes loopholes. I wish it raised taxes yeah. on rich people, <laughs> but it doesn't do that. It just closes loopholes. But but third, raising taxes on rich people is very popular. Yeah. It is overwhelmingly popular. Yeah. So just everything about this is just wrong. It's the like robbing. Why... P- it's like robbing Peter, 
the bajillionaire to pay Paul <laughs> the homeless bird. Like <laughs> not even not even robbing. Not even it's robbing. Like, That's it's like thing. Peter already robbed Paul. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> hey, could you give us just a little bit of that money back? Because, you know, because 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 this guy that's such this... <laughs> that's, it's such old world thinking like I feel like yeah. so many people have just moved beyond like like oh we shouldn't tax rich people to pay for welfare it's like no that that no one gives a shit about rich people <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and it does he doesn't even address the fact that it focuses on rich people he just says it raises taxes which is just it it doesn't it's raise just taxes. misleading it just it, well, it's a lot well, that, yeah, it doesn't raise taxes, taxes. A lot, it's just a lie. straight up lie yeah, yeah. all right. And it's mis- and even if they it did raise taxes, it would primarily focus on the rich, so therefore it would be misleading. Mm-hmm. And it's so the reason why I think it's so important for us to go over this is because you need to be ready for this because this is what they're going to try to do. Yeah. All right. Elected Republicans do not care about the truth. They will brazenly lie about this bill, and they will. Th- the thing is. It is supposed to be like I always thought it was supposed to be a Republican ideal to if there is excess spending that is unnecessary, then you cut the spending or that, that, that if you're able to reduce that spending, that is a good thing. All right. But what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to make the argument that Democrats are cutting $300 billion in benefits to elderly people in order to pay for their extremist climate agenda. Mm-hmm. And you all need to be ready for that because it's complete and utter bullshit. It is wrong on the facts. Yeah. And ultimately, this bill, as as long as people are very clear on that, this bill will absolutely help the Democrats in the midterms. I'm not saying that they're definitely going to win the House, mm-hmm. but I would put it from what it was the last time we talked about it as likely Republican to lean Republican at this point. Wow. That that's fucking progress. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because I've been taking care of business every day, taking care of business every way, taking care of business. It's all mine. Taking care of business and working overtime. Oh man, that that is a throwback for me. I, I love that song. I, because, well, for this reason, because Rush Limbaugh used to have that song what? as his intro to his show, his radio show in like the early and mid two thousands. Does he not realize it's an anti capitalist song? I think it was. Is is who's it by? I, I forget the name of the band, but it's an anti-capitalist. Yeah, song. yeah. If you listen to the lyrics, I think he. I, it is definitely an anti-capitalist. That's a good song. question. I didn't. I didn't know that, but it was on his show, and so literally, like when my mom would listen to Rush Limbaugh every day in the car, <laughs> I would like we like that was the intro. That that's like the only place that I know that song. It's he like (laughs) you're like stunned. (laughs) I'm stunned. Like there's a lyric where he says it's the work that we avoid and we're all self-employed. We love to work at nothing all day. (laughs) Well, they just picked the working overtime part. (laughs) But 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 what what that's about is basically him saying I'm doing nothing. And that's my version of taking care of business. (laughs) Like that. That's that's what he's talking about. He's saying like, you know, all these people work um, like he says, like go to work, start your slaving job and get your pay. 
And he's like, it's the work that we avoid and we're all self-employed. Mm. We love to work at nothing. What? Oh my God. He are we thought really, that was a pro-capitalist song? Are we song? really surprised that he didn't quite he thought do it was his a research on that one? Jesus. Yeah. So that that was a throwback for me. That's God, really next you're going to tell me he put Never Tire of the Road in there. <laughs> So anyway, Michael, what's our tip for good this week? <laughs> well, our tip for good this week is actually someone related to Rush Limbaugh's mid-2000s gaffe, which is <laughs> never stop looking for new, better information. Yeah. So like making it a habit to continually try to reevaluate what you think you know, what you found, and continue to look for new information. This like this like came about because, well, honestly, because of the show. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Nathan and I were talking about the fact that, you know, one of the great benefits that we get from doing this show is structure that encourages our constant engagement with these issues. Always yeah. like reading new news articles about them, new information about them, reading studies, like, and how beneficial that has been to just shaping so much of what we know and what we think and what we, th and what we know about what we think we know <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. over the past couple of years. Yeah. Michael and I, in a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, we already had a good amount of prior knowledge on a lot of the subjects, but there's been so many cases in which there has been a topic in which we've decided to talk about where when we first decided on the topic, I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure I know a lot about this. I'm really excited to talk about it. And then I start reading about it and I'm like, wow, I actually did not know that much about this. Mm -hmm. So, so one, one good example would be our last injustice system. Mm -hmm. When we talked about prison labor, that was something that I had actually, I had been in several political science classes in which we talked about it. I had been in some like critical thinking classes in which we talked about it. And I thought like, yeah, I, I mean, I know I already know that I'm against this because it is literally slavery. Like it is an exception in the 13th amendment that says that you can do slavery as long as they're, you know, incarcerated individuals. Um, so I knew I was against it and I was like, well, I, I probably won't need to do too much research. You just talk about the fact that this is terrible. But then the more I looked at it, like I, I will say that maybe 20% of the stuff that I said in that segment was stuff that I know pr I, I already knew prior to the segment. Mm -hmm. Like 80% of that stuff was stuff that I learned by just sitting down and reading for like an hour. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of like all it takes, like a little yeah. bit of time, um, like regularly. The small yeah. thing you do regularly is going to make so much more of a difference than like, you know, marathon sessions that yeah. happened seldomly. So, so the, in a practical sense, the tip for good, I would say is pick a subject that maybe, you know, a thing or two about, maybe you don't know a lot about, but you know, a thing or two about, then just spend an hour one day just reading about it. Mm -hmm. All right. Pick a different subject each week. If you can, if you have time to, and just like spend an hour learning about it. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you that you will learn things that will blow your mind. And that's tips for good. So in a very election related episode, in this segment, we're talking about 
advertising dollars from the Democratic Party. Specifically, we've seen political groups and nonprofits aligned with the Democratic uh, Party spend nearly $44 million on advertising across, uh, across states in the U.S., specifically for boosting extreme far-right candidates in Republican primaries. So in like California, Colorado, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Maryland, Michigan, um, and Arizona, Democrats are putting their dollars and their organization behind far-right primary candidates. Yeah. So... Whoa, the what? idea behind this, yeah. Well, well, so 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 they're not doing it by putting out ads that say "vote for this person." Yeah, exactly. They're actually they're using reverse psychology. So, for example, there was a race in Michigan between um, a Trump-backed challenger named John Gibbs, who was against an incumbent Republican named uh, Peter Mayhor. I think that's how you say his name. Now, Mayor. Voted to impeach Donald Trump. Yeah. Which broke with most of his colleagues on the Republican Party, which, you know, I would say, good. I mean, I'm sure I, I, I'm sure that if we went issue by issue, I would probably disagree with him on most things. But, like, I would say credit where credit is due, you know, you, uh, you voted to impeach a traitor. So, good. <laughs> um, now, he's running against... John Gibbs, or he was running against John Gibbs. The primary already happened. He was running against John Gibbs, who is a complete crazy election denier, far-right extremist, um, and he's Trump-endorsed. Now, what the Democrats did in this primary election was, rather than running ads that said, hey, you should totally vote for Gibbs, instead, they ran ads highlighting how extreme Gibbs was, mm -hmm. how he was too much like Donald Trump. So they highlighted how he would continue the policies of Trump in Congress. They highlighted how he was too conservative. They said he was handpicked by Trump for Congress, that he would support patriotic education, that he would support border security. Mm -hmm. Now, Obviously, because they were saying that they were the Democrats, they were pretending that they were saying this was bad. Yep. But the point was for Republican voters to see that and be like, oh, well, fuck, I like that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then to end up voting. So so it's this reverse psychology where they're trying to get the more extreme candidate that they think is more likely to lose. Yes. To, to win the primary so that the Democrat can defeat them in the general. The example that Nathan laid out is really representative so they have like yeah. they have ads targeted at tying people to trump like you know john gibbs is former trump staff dan cox has my complete endorsement a quote from donald trump um if doug mastriano wins it's a win for what trump stands for things like that they've got like the the two conservative stuff um so they've got a number of these ads that are just like the things that can ostensibly be said, be said to be like, you know, just Democrats saying you shouldn't vote for this person because if they were speaking to a Democratic audience, you know, they would, they would, like, they would be against that person. But the thing is, it's a primary. You're never speaking to the opposing side. You're speaking yeah. to the people that are paying attention to the primary, the Republicans. 
Now, another thing that I think is important to note and also to try to draw a distinction is that this isn't necessarily the candidates who are doing this. Yeah. This is the DCCC. Yeah. All right. This is the campaign arm of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in many cases, the Democratic candidate in these elections that they're supposedly helping are like, what the fuck are you doing? Stop. Like, I'm I'm not okay with this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, who is the, the current chair of the DCCC, has actually been defending this. Um, he, he argued that there is a high bar for deploying the, ta uh, the tactic. So I guess presumably that means it's a, uh, it's to try to, it, it, they, they target elections that they're fairly certain are not going to end up being won by the extremist. Mm -hmm. Um, he only, you know, he says that it, they do it in only places where, quote, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And here's the thing. So I, I got to say, because I, I haven't, I don't know if I've completely expressed my opinion about this yet in this segment. Um, if you know me, you probably know where I'm going with this. But just to make it clear uh, where I stand. Um, so I. Sean Patrick Maloney is actually one of two politicians that I met years back when I was on an internship uh, with the Human Rights Campaign. One of them was Kirsten Cinema, and uh, the other one was Sean Patrick Maloney. And I got to say, Kirsten Cinema has been consistently the biggest disappointment of of all the politicians that I've that I've met in person. Uh, but with this strategy, I got to say. Maloney's giving her a run. <laughs> because what the actual fuck are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. That's, see, that's the thing. We only know half the story right now. Because, like, like, all we know right now is that in some of these races where they've been backing these more extreme candidates, those more extreme candidates have won the primary. So in Illinois, yeah. they put $35 million behind uh, the gubernatorial race. In favor of Darren Bailey challenging uh, challenging the incumbent there, um, and he ended up winning the primary with the Trump endorsement. He's a fucking absolute crazy person, like like berated fellow lawmakers for the gall of bringing up the separation of church and state. Has like violent Bible verses on his campaign bus, and he won the nomination fifty five point two percent. To the runner-ups, eighteen point six percent. So, like, really won it. Same thing in Pennsylvania. The race for governor mm -hmm. there um, is uh, the Democratic candidate is Josh Shapiro, and he's been putting he put you know or not he but the Democrats put eight hundred and forty thousand dollars into TV ads for Doug Mastri Mastriano. Um, Mastriano is like bust people to the January 6th riot, like yeah. fucking as deep into deep state conspiracy election denying shit as you can get. And one, uh, with 43.8% of, of the vote in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah. they're putting organizing in behind similar candidates in Arizona and, uh, and, and that organizing, although it wasn't a bunch of money, it was just like a couple of like, 
uh, press releases in favor of the extreme candidate there. She ended up winning 47.9% to 43.2%, so a little bit more on the edge. In Maryland, they're putting they're putting emphasis behind the guben- gubernatorial race there as well. Uh, right now, it's still a toss-up who's going to win, um, but... <clears throat> But like they could be making the difference there, um, and in a few other states, and of course in the in the in Michigan in uh, the Gibbs election, Gibbs ended up winning after they'd put four hundred and twenty five thousand dollars behind his campaign. In many of these cases, they are spending more money on advertising for these extreme candidates than the candidates have spent on their campaigns because they can't they don't have the money, <laughs> you know. So like, yeah. um, so like. That's so. So far, half of it has worked in those cases. The first half, get the extreme person in to win the primary, where it's quote unquote failed so far as in California and Colorado, and that's like the much more common path for these strategies. Like normally, so this is not totally new this year. This is something that Democrats have done throughout like the the two thousand teens, um, and normally the strategy strategy fails because the more extreme candidate just loses which is the much like no harm, no foul, much better failure outcome than what you're talking about, Nathan, which is the potential for like the big worry, yeah. which is that fucking in the age of Trump, in the age of extremism, that Republicans just bite the bullet and go with the yeah. extreme candidate. Yeah. Did you see what happened in 2016? Yeah. And... 2020 for that matter mm-hmm. all right we have seen what happens when a crazy candidate like that ends up winning in a general election and we also see what happens if a crazy candidate like that ends up losing in those elections so so first off i i i remember in 2016 i was cheering for trump during the primary mm-hmm. because i was stupid enough to think that there was no way no way in hell that he could possibly win. And I ate those words and I swore I would never do anything like that again. Yeah. I swore I would never be stupid enough to think, well, let's elevate the the extremist candidate so that we don't have to deal with them. But even beyond whether or not this works, all right? Mm-hmm. Because because again, in 2016, people that thought that it ended up backfiring because the guy won. But think about what happened in 2020. When he lost, it it deepened divides in our country. It led to a fucking insurrection. It led to all of these conspiracy theories about voting machines. It led to all of these pushes for, for, for stricter voter laws. Mm -hmm. I mean, it led to a goddamn insurrection. Yeah. So when you're putting these candidates in that are extremist, that are crazy, that are, that are election deniers, that are conspiracy theorists, that are that are QAnon cuckoo heads. Yeah. Even if they lose, you welcomed that type of ideology mm-hmm. into the Overton window yeah. within those districts. Yep. You deepened divides, and not only and that, gave them a so this bigger is, platform. Exactly. So that's just the practical argument. Yeah. In terms of the moral argument, God damn. 
You have been spending all of this time talking about how Republicans are the biggest threat that there is to American democracy. You've been talking about how we can't elect we, we can't elect all of these extremist Republicans. They've gone so extreme. They, we can't welcome them, in, them into our democracy. They're a huge threat to democracy. Vote for Democrats. All right. We are not the threats to democracy. And then you do this. Mm-hmm. You do this. Yeah. And you do it to push out candidates that are not election deniers, in some cases, candidates that voted to impeach Donald Trump, and you think that in any way, that this looks good? Yeah. You think that this reflects well on your own moral integrity? Look, I have said over and over again that I do want the Democrats to be a little bit more brazen, to be a little bit more like Republicans in terms of their strategy, but this is not what I was talking about. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I've got I've got like two main points I want to make uh on on this on this thing. One's on the practical side. Uh and the other is on kind of the political and like uh like Overton window side. So w- on the practical side. This strategy has worked before. Right? So like I think the most common example that you'll see touted by all these strategists is um, in 2012, uh, Claire, McCaskill. Claire McCaskill, exactly. Uh, like in the last couple of weeks of, of the of the primary, she put like $1.7 million into ads, boosting Todd Akin, the primary challenger on the, or the radical like Tea Party candidate. He won his primary, did exactly what she had expected he would do, absolutely went off the fucking rails. He's the guy that that referred to legitimate rape, like women's ha- bodies have ways to defend themselves in the cases of legitimate rape. Um, and, like, he just totally fucking imploded, and she won, uh, like, absolutely handily in that race. And so people keep holding this up as, like, a great example. Um, the problem with that example, and other ex- examples when this has worked, is that, like... Pre-Trump, <laughs> exactly, Ex- exactly that. So like, so like a couple things. One, in the Todd Akin case, as soon as he, like, uh, exposed himself to be this just totally horrible, like, un, un, impossible to win candidate, the Republican leadership rejected him, just yeah. stopped supporting him. Didn't they? Don't do that anymore, right? No matter how bad yeah. the candidate, they just go on supporting them. And so when this has worked, it's been like uniquely terrible candidates in specifically in the pre-Trump era when there were things that we just wouldn't, that we wouldn't accept, not even the Republicans would accept. And, and like, if I would ask you today, after Trump's like on tape admitting to having raped someone. Yeah. Like, if Todd Akin made his legitimate rape comment, yeah, he would have he would have gone up in the polls. Like, and also let's let's not forget in 2012. Like, I remember in the primary election, in the primary election, it was this complete circus. All right, where every single week it felt like there was a new front runner, mm-hmm. and then they would go down because people would discover something terrible about them. <laughs> like at one point, Michelle Bachman was up, and then they found out she was an anti-vaxer, so she plummeted. Uh, Rick Perry went up, and then they found out he was a total idiot, and he plummeted. <laughs> 
um, Herman Cain went up for a while, and then they found out that he had been accused of sexual misconduct, and so then he plummeted. Donald Trump is an anti-vaxxer. Exactly. Who has, who is a total idiot, and has also been accused of sexual misconduct. Yep. He's all three of those things, yeah. and he won. So 2012, the 2012 election was a very different time exactly. than 2016 and especially today. Yeah. So that's that's my first point. The second point I want to make is that if you notice the couple of the few examples that I've walked through, especially the ones where this has been successful, have been focused on gubernatorial elections, you know, state level control. Which on the one hand, you might think, oh, well, you know, that's not the Senate. You're wrong <laughs> because like, because wrong. It, this would be better. This would be a, a less, this would be a gambit with less downside if it were the house, Even, a, a, a little bit more, but still less downside if it was the Senate. The, the thing is that like if Republicans in these States decide to bite the bullet and elect these extremist governors, governors are in an incredible position of power. Right. Like yeah. no one senator can do anything by themselves. But every governor can. Yeah. Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, governors fucking matter to the people yeah. in those states. They make they have a huge impact. Not only that. These candidates are some of the most right wing election denying candidates out there. And so you're going to put them in a position where they could directly influence the next election as yeah. governors of states like their like state level control is one of the major advantages that republicans continue to have in like state control of state legislatures it's one of the main areas of emphasis that they are building on for 2024 when they could potentially challenge any outcome that they don't like to the election and if they've put the right people in the right seats in state houses and in governor's mansions they could take it so the yeah. idea that we're playing like this game with seats that are in unique positions of power not unique yeah not exactly unique there's 50 of them there's 50 only 50. Yeah. Like, it blows my mind. This seems like the worst possible place for you, for Democrats to kind of play this game. This is coming from money that was raised by people that donated to the DCCC. Yeah. You are using the money given to you by Democratic voters to uplift far-right candidates. I mean... That is so wrong, and that's that's a betrayal. Now, again, I do want to make one thing clear. Again, ultimately, I do want the Democrats to take control of the House, and it is important to note that it isn't the Democratic candidates that are doing this. Yes. It's the DCCC. Yeah. And in fact, there have been a bunch of cases in which various Democratic candidates who have been who have supposedly benefited from this or 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 they're they're like the claim is that they're going to benefit from this have been completely against it so the opponent of of Gibbs in um in Michigan uh Hillary uh Shulton um she actually 
called it an unwanted distraction mm. from the issue that from the issues that the voters care most about. Um, uh, Jason Crow from Colorado said, "It's very dangerous. I think in this environment to be propping up candidates like that." He called it a terrible idea. Um, Representative Dean Phillips from Minnesota said it's dishonorable, it's dangerous, and it's just damn wrong. And now it's time for our new segment, MWTF. So, Nathan... What the fuck is MWTF? (laughs) (laughs) So MWTF stands for miscellaneous what the fuck. And it is a segment that we decided to start doing because we just kept coming across so many stories that were just hilarious and silly. And the types of things that we like to just, you know, point a finger at and just laugh but they didn't fall under the category of asshat because it wasn't necessarily someone doing something extremely heinous. And it didn't really fall under the category of Dershowitz bag because it wasn't necessarily somebody making an argument. So we decided to do a segment where we just talk about miscellaneous things, miscellaneous stories that just make us say, what What the the fuck? fuck? Yeah, seriously. And this one is a fucking doozy. This is so funny. Oh, my God. So a lot of you probably know conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. One of the things that he's really well known for is the fact that he trolled the families of Sandy Hook, of Sandy Hook children that were killed in a mass shooting. Not just trolled them. He spread conspiracy theories that that claimed that it never happened. And what basically ended up happening was that these parents were pursued and harassed by fans of Alex Jones. And these were parents that had lost their kids in a shooting. All right. So many of them had to, had to move different places, had to move several times. And so they sued Alex Jones for defamation. And they won, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Yeah, it's great. That is not but how they got on the show. <laughs> but not how this got on the show. Because what happened was at one point, Alex Jones had apparently said that he had never sent any texts regarding uh, regarding Sandy Hook. And his lawyer, F. Andio Raynell, which you should remember that name because you should never hire this person, <laughs> accidentally emailed all of Alex Jones's text messages from the last two <laughs> years to the lawyer on the other side. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so fucked up. And there's this dramatic courtroom reveal, which is something from a movie, where he said, quote, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text you've sent for the past two years. He added, do you know what perjury is? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, no, because my lawyers never told me because I have the worst fucking lawyers. (laughs) Because, yeah, because under oath, he said 
that um, he said that they didn't have any texts regarding Sandy Hook, that he had never sent any text messages regarding Sandy Hook. And it turns out they did. And his defense lawyer sent him, sent the evidence to the fucking See, plaintiffs. It would be, it would be bad if his lawyer just sent the text messages and it was like, well, that means we're going to pay us a bunch of money, pay the, you know, we lose, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that it's also a, an additional crime, it's like extra yeah. courtroom time <laughs> for this guy. That's and- amazing. And one of the funniest parts is that um, Raynell, the the lawyer, um, tried to ask for the judge to declare a mistrial <laughs> <laughs> because he fucked up so supremely. Which, so, so that's the crazy. That's the crazy thing about this. Also, like, it's not as if this were a criminal trial, where, yeah. like, the rules of evidence are a little, you know, adversarial. This is yeah. a civil trial. Which means yeah. discovery means that you are entitled. Both sides are entitled to the full for all the evidence, the full factual yeah. record. Which is like this couldn't possibly be a mistrial because you hid something that should have come out during discovery. Yeah. You know what this made me think of? It made me think of that scene in Liar Liar, where um, Jim Carrey is just like, "I object," and the and the judge is like, on what grounds? And then Jim Carrey is just like, because it's devastating to my case. <laughs> <laughs> That's just so funny. Oh, my God. This whole thing has been such a shit show. I just like, and his lawyers have been so bad, and they're so not going to get away with being so bad, but I just love that the fucking cherry on top of the fact that he's going to have to pay them like $50 million. Which good. Which good. The cherry on top is that he's also perjured himself and that his yeah. lawyer is the one that delivered both of those results. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Yeah. I I mean, the dumbass hired a dumbass. Exactly. And they dumbassed everything up. That's the thing. This His fucking lawyer is a person that he has had on his show. That's why he's his lawyer. It's like... It's like if you're gonna if you're gonna be a charlatan, know you're a charlatan and don't hire the people that help you be a charlatan. <laughs> like <laughs> that's fucking amazing. Uh, so that's yeah. MWTF. So our third segment tonight is focused on intuitive arguments versus informed arguments. So mm. so this kind of came out of a conversation we were having about like why it seems like, well, this is a conversation we have all the fucking time. Why it seems like Democrats who, who often have like more informed, better arguments, better positions are often on the back foot. They're like behind when it comes to messaging and, and like it makes it really hard to get good things done because good opinions are nuanced opinions. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes nuanced opinions are difficult to say quickly. Yeah. To be able to say sharply and intuitive. Yeah. Which was one of the things that like Bernie was so good at. Yeah. Like that was one of his incredible like superpowers was the ability to like brand with a key phrase. Yeah. Whole sets of ideas 
that he would just continually use that brand, that 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 policy brand again and again and yeah. again, and that enabled it to carry so much more weight and be so much more compelling. Yeah. So let's 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 use that example for a second because I think that that in a lot of ways can encompass this. So let's look at the argument for Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of extremely well-informed arguments in favor of Medicare for all. And there's also a lot of very intuitive arguments against Medicare for all. Yes. Cause like if you're talking to just somebody about healthcare for the first time, mm -hmm. more likely than not, if you were to say, to somebody that's never experienced universal health care before, never even heard of universal sure. health care before, they're going to say, well, hold on. You're saying the government pays for the health care of everybody. There's no way that's affordable. Mm -hmm. And even if it was affordable, they would have to raise they would have to raise taxes like sky high yeah, totally. in order for that to even be practical. Yep. There is there is no way that could possibly happen. Yep. Or, or right? another wanna, common argument like oh, well, if the government's going to do it, that means that at some point we're going to have to save money on it, and so there's going to be shortages because when yeah. the government provides stuff, eventually there leads to shortages. And in fact, I think nobody encompasses this so-called intuitive argument better than this argument that I once heard Ben Shapiro make, mm. which the intuitive argument that he made was that in any healthcare system, you have to think of three things, all right? There can be... You know, there's universality, there's affordability, and there's quality. You can have two of them, but you can't have all amazing. three. Amazing. Fucking amazing. A false trichotomy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so it's, but the thing is, it sounds intuitive. It does. It's intuitive. It completely sounds intuitive. But the thing is, when you actually look into the information, you start to see that number one, the United States spends more per capita on healthcare than any other country in the world. So we don't have affordability. Number two, the United States actually ranks the lowest in the top 11 countries in terms of overall health outcomes. So in terms of quality, we don't have that. And of course, we don't have universality. So the United States doesn't have any of those things, yeah. doesn't have all three of those things. Yeah, you literally don't even have to tackle the factual question of whether there's an actual trade-off in order to say, well, at least we could pick two. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, we but we, we don't have we don't have them. And it doesn't seem very intuitive for me to say that universal health care is actually cheaper because it just doesn't. It just How doesn't is universality true. cheaper? How is bigger cheaper? Yeah, exactly. Now, there are a lot of informed arguments that we can use in order to say that it's cheaper. Number one, cuts down administrative cost. Number two. Uh, has more of a focus on preventative care rather than emergency care. Number three, it gives the government a better ability. It, it, it puts the consumer of healthcare products, which in this case would be the government, a single payer, in a better position to negotiate with companies that supply that medical equipment or that medicine, mm -hmm. um, which ends up driving down the cost significantly, which is one of the reasons why in so many other countries, you always hear this whole thing about how like insulin costs like fifty million dollars in the United States, and you know a bottle cap in 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 Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's a lot of informed arguments that you can make, but it's hard to get over that intuitive argument. And one of the things that Bernie Sanders was really good at was he was really good at just very clearly and concisely saying we spend more than any other country on healthcare. And yet we don't cover everybody. We need to guarantee healthcare as a right to everybody. 
we need to join the rest of the developed world in, in, in making that guarantee. And as soon as he started making those, not just informed arguments, but intuitive arguments, yeah. polling shot up for single payer yep. for, 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 for the, 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 the proposals that he was making. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I think, yeah, it's, we've accepted largely a false dichotomy, which is that informed yeah. means complex. Yeah. And the, and like, I don't know, maybe it goes back to like that, uh, like Einstein, uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, so I can't quote it, but like paraphrasing, it was essentially like, if, if you can't explain a concept to me simply, then you don't know it well enough. Yeah. And it's like, it's something similar to that, which is like all of these things to be fair, I bet fucking like Bernie Sanders has been in Congress since they were chiseling the, the laws on stone. And so like, <laughs> he's had a lot of practice in like yeah. making these arguments and making yeah. them intuitive. So I'm not saying that it's easy by any means. It's hard. You have to, to become like truly compelling on these subjects and make them intuitive. It is a difficult, difficult yeah. task, but like, it can drive such powerful, powerful results. And like, listen, like if you think about the argument that you just laid out, Nathan, it was like, it was like, you know, it, it was like a one, two punch. Like we've got, we pay more. That's a bad thing. We have worst, worst health outcomes. That's a bad thing. Other people do it better than us. That's a comparative thing, right? Which yeah. means that we can do it better and we're the fucking United States. We can do it better, you know? And like it, it plays to like our like pride yeah. or whatever and join the rest of the developed world ends on like a positive, like we can just be part of this coalition of people that do great things for their, for their constituents. And like, it's super compelling. Yeah. And oftentimes this especially is present when it comes to culture war issues, mm. because there are a lot of intuitive arguments that conservatives make that at face value sound perfectly reasonable. So for, for example, you often hear the, the argument of, well, if black pride is okay, then why isn't white pride? And you know, a, a, an intuitive person could look at that and be like, well, why isn't white pride okay? I mean, isn't, isn't that just another form of racism to say that you can't be proud of being white if you say that you can be proud of being black? It's an intuitive argument. It's not an informed argument, but it's an intuitive argument, yeah. all right? Which means that when you are combating an argument like that, you need to be both intuitive and informed. Yeah. So in this case, it would be pointing out the fact that, as it stands, approximately a quarter of all black people live below the poverty line versus 11% of white people. There is an institutional tendency within our country and a historical tendency within our country to disadvantage people of color, to disadvantage black people, to disadvantage um, other types of uh, other racial minorities. All right. So when you say white pride, basically what you're just saying is that you're, you're proud of not being black. Not being the, or, yeah. Those other, yeah, not, 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 not being those other. Yeah. So, cause, cause that, cause pride comes from struggle and white people have never struggled because of their race, but black people have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's the intuitive argument, but it's also the informed argument. Yeah. And, and, and like, that's the thing. And like turning that into, something that you can say that feels com like intuitive that feels compelling that's like you know you don't have a white community <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean like yeah. and and 
and that's the tough part is, and that's the part that takes like practice and, and all that and, and experience and, and all that stuff. But like, it's this, it's the thing that Bernie does really well. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does really well on a number of issues. Like, and, and the thing is like intuitive arguments that are not informed can be, can last just generations. They can (laughs) be really dangerous, like trickle down economics, Uh, trickle down. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's the most, it, it is an argument so intuitive that, it is written down in academic economics papers. <laughs> like yeah. it made it like the idea that a rising tide raises all boats. It's just like, of course it does. Absolutely. That is true. And like, so, so there's, it's a one it's, and you used to believe. That, oh, Michael. absolutely. I did. Yeah, absolutely. I did. And, and why wouldn't you, it sounds completely logical. That's the thing. Like if like Elon Musk is a, a 200 billionaire if even if he just spends a bunch of that money like you know by breaking somebody's window and then they've got to go and he's got to pay him for the window and then they go and they they feed the window maker and then he buys bread and he feeds the baker and then he you know like like it's just so compelling and simple and and easy to understand what it does not do is describe the world effectively is predict yeah. things effectively. And so like, but that's like a hard argument to make, you know, like it's difficult to say, yeah, except that's not how it really works. And yeah. like, so it's the requirement is to one, have the information and we don't have all the information about everything. We're still learning, you know, like all of us, academics, politicians, pundits, you know, everybody's still like learning about certain subjects, but where we do have the information, at least some good information like we can start forming these intuitive arguments and there's so many of them like like we have to have a higher minimum wage because inflation and rising costs have outpaced wages like yeah for decades yeah so intuitive yeah yeah um we have to guarantee college tuition to everybody because we cannot have education be an institution that can only be taken advantage of by the rich and the well-off. And education is one of the biggest drivers of social mobility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the fact that uh, we have to raise taxes on the rich or at least restructure our tax system on the rich because the average risk person pays less as a percentage of their wealth than the average poor person. Yeah. The fact that in a democracy, you should be making it easier to vote and not more difficult. Easy. Exactly. And like, yeah, all of these are just like intuitive. And and ultimately, the intuitiveness of an argument has to tackle the main, you know, counter arguments, right? What makes yeah. Bernie's arguments so good is that by the time you've heard them, there's not a lot left on the table that are you know that you're like counter arguing with and that's what makes those so powerful and it's why this project is ongoing you know like all the examples that we listed are i think good examples i don't think they're amazing examples i don't think we're in a position where like we have the perfect way to argue for all of these things but i think we owe it to ourselves and others to to keep trying 
Yeah. And sometimes it involves not necessarily saying everything behind the intuition. You have so yeah. so earlier earlier when I used the example of like, you know, the the, the racial politics, mm -hmm. the information behind it, that's not the stuff that you say. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Now if if pressed on it in an interview it is. Sure. But if you're just in a campaign ad or if you're on a tweet or you're just you're trying to get that sound bite, the information that you have in your mind is, well, black people have a higher likelihood of remaining in poverty because of things like like redlining, like um, just implicit bias and hiring practices, generational poverty, all of that. You have all that to inform what you say, but then what you end up saying is, well, the reason for that is because white people have not struggled because of their race, but black people have. Mm -hmm. Simple, intuitive, boom. And now we'll end our show as we usually do on our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, Michael, my highlight this week is actually a preemptive highlight. Mm, I, I might have an idea of what it is. Yeah. So, so this, uh, uh, this weekend, I'm going to be doing a uh, river vacation with two of my very good friends. Oh, that's so uh, great. One, yeah, one uh, uh, Michael Bloom and Taylor Bloom. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I have to say that I think is my highlight as well. I'm really looking forward yeah. to what is starting to become an annual river hangout. So yeah. this is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And I think, I think that it was... So you, you, you came and you, you helped me move move into my house but i think before that the last time i had seen you in person was actually last year's hangout. i think that's right which is just crazy yeah. considering yeah, that's we talk last time i saw taylor times a week it's remarkable yeah. <laughs> that's how yeah. long it's been but i'm i'm so looking forward to chilling with you and taylor we're gonna have a great time yeah me too me too and that is absolutely my highlight and so thank you so much to our amazing patrons for making this show possible so thank you to gerard deviller Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Janssen. And to you, dear listener, thanks for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.